Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Sound Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis, and this is episode number two. Coming up today on Sound Medicine, we're trying to understand how the Zika virus works by understanding its structure. We've solved a blueprint for beginning to build something bigger. This is clearly laying out the kinds of things that we should be looking for. Plus, if I beat one myth down before I die, I'd like it to be this one. This is just one of those. It just doesn't go away. There's no scientific proof at all that you need eight glasses of water a day. We'll bust that medical myth and a few more with the New York Times' Dr. Aaron Carroll. Just wait till you hear what he says about milk and about supplements. So stick around for this episode of Sound Medicine. The biggest medical mystery of 2016 has been the Zika virus. This is a mosquito-borne disease. It's shown up in people in 33 countries so far all around the world, leading the World Health Organization to call it a public health emergency of international concern. And I'm sure you've seen the pictures already. The infants born with abnormally small heads, that's a condition called microcephaly. Scientists strongly believe that it is caused by the mothers being bitten by a Zika-infected mosquito at some point during their pregnancy. Before there can be a treatment or a vaccine for Zika, there needs to be a better understanding of how that virus is similar or different from other viruses in the same family. That includes dengue fever and the West Nile virus. I called up Professor Richard Kuhn. He knows a lot about West Nile and a lot about dengue. A matter of fact, he spent his entire life studying these flaviviruses, as they're called. He heads the Department of Biological Sciences at Purdue University. He and his colleagues have just published a paper in the journal Science because they discovered the structure of the Zika virus based on analysis at the near-atomic level using an extremely powerful new kind of microscope. And they also leaned heavily on what they've already studied for dengue and West Nile. So I asked him what understanding the structure of the Zika virus would help them figure out next. So the antiviral pathway is a little bit better defined. Um, the antiviral pathway um, is one in which we now have the atomic structures of the proteins that make up the virus particle, the virus 
itself. And so we can think about a number of different types of molecules that would interfere with the virus replication. We can think about molecules that would block attachment of the virus to the surface of the cell. Uh, we can think about um, molecules that would interfere with the ability of some of the viral proteins to move. And we've previously identified a number of, of specific sites. We now have those sites well-defined for Zika based on our structure. And then another aspect would be these proteins put themselves together, and those proteins, uh, you know, as they come together, they come in close association. And so we can think about molecules that interfere with the way the proteins come together. So basically we can think about inhibitors against the process of assembly of that virus, and we can think about inhibitors of the entry and disassembly of the virus. That's the antiviral piece. In terms of vaccines, um, we have ideas as to what makes Zika more different than some of the other flaviviruses. And so if you were to make a subunit vaccine, that might be a region that you concentrate on. Alternatively, uh, what we might want to do is take known vaccines and put in pieces of the Zika virus. And so that would recognize then both of those. So there's a number of possibilities on the vaccine front also. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of, lots of experiments that actually fall directly out of knowing what the structure of the virus is. What is the more likely result, a, a treatment or a vaccine? I think from the structure, the most immediate thing is an antiviral. So you worked with the dengue virus and, and you worked with the West Nile virus, too, that you right. really, really understood. How did knowing what you know about dengue and what you know about West Nile affect how you even approached the Zika virus? Well, first of all, it was a kind of a, you know, a no-brainer to simply um, do Zika virus. One, it's, you know, we grow it. Probably we start at least in the same way that we grow these other viruses. We have all of the reagents and, and protocols down. And two, Zika was emerging as an important pathogen, and therefore it was of interest just on that alone. So given that it seemed like it was and is an important human pathogen, and the fact that we already had expertise, we had reagents, we had protocols, it was just a natural kind of uh, sidestep for us to, to work on Zika virus. But this one is very unique. It goes through the blood-brain barrier, the placental barrier, um, the things that other of these flaviviruses don't do, right? Yeah, right, exactly. So that's what makes it, uh, you know, an interesting and challenging virus to look at because there are so many things that it has that are similar to the other flaviviruses, and yet it has very different kind of tropism, that is where, what cells it infects, and what cells it infects then impacts what kind of a disease someone would, would exhibit. And so that's really interesting. And, you know, as a first approximation, it's going to be controlled by how does the virus get into those cells, and that's obviously the structure of the virus particle itself. And so we've solved kind of a, a, a blueprint for beginning to build something bigger uh, than what we have right now. And we don't, you know, admittedly, we don't have a lot of stuff around Zika, a lot of information around Zika virus. But this is clearly laying out the kinds of things that we should be looking for. We should be looking for 
you know, what are the specific regions on the virus surface that allow it to go across the placenta and infect early neuronal cells in a developing human fetus. That's not what we see with dengue virus, even though the virus structures, you know, at a gross level look very similar. On a very fine level, when we look at residues or amino acids, we know there are differences, and that's what we're pursuing now. And, you know, we're, we're, we're all paying attention to the Zika virus, and obviously microcephaly and these children born with abnormally small heads, you know, tug at our heartstrings, and we understand that this is an important yep. virus. Yep. But in if you look at dengue and you look at West Nile and you look at other encephalitic tick-borne diseases um, and everything else that, that's out there that you're studying, how does Zika kind of shape up compared to the threat of, of, of these different viruses that are out there now? Yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting question because, you know, from my perspective, I think a lot of people's perspective, it seems like everybody that we know in the virus world or the scientific community is interested in pursuing some area of Zika research. Everybody seems to be jumping in. For us, it's a question of why do we see these differences? You know, and this is fundamental biology uh, of these viruses, and that fundamental biology is going to translate for us into the disease outcome. And an understanding of parts of those are going to allow us to develop new strategies be they a vaccine or be they antivirals against something like Zika. Dengue uh, is a very major problem. If you look in Brazil, there are far more cases of dengue than Zika. Um, the morbidity around dengue is, is far greater than it is around Zika. And so dengue remains an important virus that we are studying and that we want to understand and control. Um, Zika is something that is kind of racing around the planet right now, and because of that and because of this very scary disease that it causes, I think, you know, we're, we're kind of pushing a lot of emphasis on that, even though our dengue work is still uh, very much going full speed. So, so let's use one of your other, uh, your, your work with West Nile, uh, for example. Um, how quickly is the Zika virus information kind of coming together? Because it seems like it, you know, it's in the news as it's happening, and then all of a sudden yeah. there's this breakthrough, and it just seems very quick compared to a lot of other searches for, yeah. for, for viruses. Yeah. So, so I guess there's two things that, you know, one is that there was this emphasis that we really needed to work quickly on this. It's an important problem. Uh, you know, it's, it's something that we were doing already with these other viruses we had experienced. So it just made, it made sense to do it as quick as we could because we knew there would be competition. We knew that it was important. The other thing is that we have significantly improved our technology for looking at uh, viruses using these uh, EM cryo-electron microscopy techniques. And, and this has been developments over the last year or two. And so... Um, and you better translate that for me. Okay, sure. Okay. So what we have now is essentially uh, new equipment that allows us to go to much higher resolution using just microscopy. That previously was not possible. Previously, we used a combination of electron microscopy and another technique called X-ray crystallography, the latter being a technique that kind of takes quite a bit of time, gives you very high-resolution information, but takes a lot of time and doesn't always succeed. 
So we, with one technique now, with this cryo-electron microscopy, we can essentially uh, ignore the X-ray crystallography and, and just do it all in one shot. And so that made it much, much faster to get the same amount of information uh, that previously would take us a, a year or so to do. Okay. So th this last question is, is, is a bit of a, a summary of all the other questions. Is there something about the Zika virus that you're still trying to discover in your lab at Purdue? Clearly, one of the things that we're interested in is what region of the virus is important for binding to cells and what region is important for the tropism that we see. Um, so that's certainly an area that my group is, is pursuing. Uh, we're collaborating on that uh, with other groups. And so I think it's, it's, it's a fundamental question in the Zika virus field right now. And I suspect that many people are looking at that, trying to figure it out. Richard Kuhn, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure, and congratulations on this breakthrough. Thank you, Barbara. It's been a pleasure. Richard Kuhn directs the Purdue Institute for Inflammation, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now, if my next guest has one pet peeve, it's the myth that we all need to drink eight glasses of water per day. And believe me, my guest has a lot of pet peeves. Dr. Aaron Carroll is a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. He blogs on health policy at The Incidental Economist. And he loves to track down actual, oh, research on various rules about eating and drinking just to see if what everyone says is actually true. And whether it's the latest trend on avoiding gluten or following a vegan or vegetarian diet, Aaron strongly believes, well, I'll let him tell you. Yeah, I'm amazed at how we have long, you know, moved to demonize food after food after food after food when all the evidence almost to a T shows that the, whatever we're picking demonize, it, the evidence just doesn't pan out. You know. We could spend hours talking about any one of those, but you know, when we talk about gluten, for instance, there's no question that you know, people who have celiac disease, which is they, their body has a real intolerance for gluten, need to avoid gluten. And when they go on a gluten-free diet, they see remarkable changes. People who have a wheat allergy absolutely need to avoid you know, wheat and gluten is, is mixed up in that and that. So, but that is a very small percentage of, of people in the world. 
Um, consistently, it's like maybe one-ish percent across the board. When you look at country to country to country, yet it's like something like 20 to 30 or percent or more of Americans are trying to eat gluten-free diets because they think that somehow this is going to work when studies show that it doesn't make a difference. Does it make a difference? I mean, even weight? Or well, it does can it make... in a sense. If avoiding a gluten-free diet means that you start avoiding massive amounts of carbs and massive amounts of processed foods, that often translates into healthier eating. And so... It's hard if you adopt a complete gluten-free lifestyle to massively overeat carbs. It just is, because it's like there's not that much else left. Um, you can do it, but, but it, I think most people who often shift to a gluten-free diet wound up eating a better overall diet, and that can often help you with weight loss. And that's fine as a personal decision. But don't lecture other people that gluten is devil and that they need to get rid of gluten. It's also eating a gluten-free diet can be more expensive, it can be limiting. There are some products where, you know, if you buy the gluten-free variety of cereals and things, for instance, it winds up that they actually turn out to have a more unhealthy eating profile. And they do because the stuff that they have to make to replace the gluten. Kind of like our fat-free snack right. wells. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and yeah. it's, it's, it's amazing how we often, we replace fat with carbs. And that has not been good probably in, in the scheme of things. So I never want to lecture any individual um, who's made a dietary choice that works for them that they shouldn't be doing it. That's fine. My hackles get raised when they start lecturing other people and telling them how they eat. So when the gluten-free craze hits and everyone starts lecturing me that I need to avoid gluten, I don't like that, especially when there's no evidence behind it. There are a lot of households with a, with a, a, a preteen or a teen that decides to become vegan or vegetarian mm -hmm. and wants to explore it, and, and the parents who are worried about their health, long-term health. With vegetarians and with vegans, it is possible to sort of make sure you're getting all the appropriate amino acids and all the, the things that you're supposed to. It takes a little more work because, you know, it is harder to get some protein sources, especially when you go full vegan, um, because it just is. Now, it doesn't mean it can't be done, but you just have to be a little more careful. But there, you know, in almost, almost any eating choice that you make, there are probably ways to make it work. And there are probably guidelines that we could pick uh, as a country that would allow for a variety of food options and still uh, have them fall into what we would call healthy eating that's providing what you need to, to be happy and to survive. Um, but we just have to recognize that, you know, the more restrictive we are, the harder it is. You know, we are probably evolutionarily designed to eat a ton of different kinds of foods because that's just how mammals came to be. You can do that sometimes with, with you know, a wide variety of plants. You can sometimes do that with a, certainly a wide variety of plants and or animal products. Um, but you know, there are certain things, if you, if you start cutting out foods or certainly whole classes of foods, it becomes a little bit more harder and you have to be a little bit more thoughtful about making sure you're getting everything you need. And that's where supplements come in. <laughs> oh. I'm just making it's your like, day, yeah, It's a beating I? after a beating, yeah. My, I, my problem is that, like, not with some, so supplements are, it's not with supplements per se or the theory of supplements. My problem is the way that we treat supplements partially and partially the way the industry is run. Um, let's take the former first. It doesn't take much to, to get what we actually require as human beings. We're designed to be pretty hardy. Um, when people were crossing the ocean and getting scurvy because they didn't have enough vitamin C, it's not as if everyone had to have an obscene amount, you know, 
glasses of orange juice a day, often by making sure people got doses of vitamin C in the forms of citrus once in a while across the board, they were fine. In a normal human diet today, especially in the United States, most people are getting enough vitamin C. The problem lies in assuming because we need some of it to be healthy, that getting tons of it will make us healthier. That is a flaw in logic that does not work. The body doesn't just magically go, oh, wow, we got more vitamin C, let's create more goodness. It, it basically goes, we have enough vitamin C, pee it out. And so you wind up making incredibly expensive urine. And massively overdosing yourself with, with any kinds of vitamins or something above what your body needs has never been proven in almost any study to result in gains in health. It just makes, again, expensive urine uh, because you're, you're peeing it out. That, that's the first part. Um, so there's some conflicting evidence about whether a general multivitamin, the kind you can buy by the barrel at Costco, um, and which is pretty cheap, improves health. Some studies say yes, some studies say no, but that's just basically trying to give you your recommended daily allowance. It's cheap. I can think of very few downsides. You know, some people take it, they maybe see a benefit. And that's all you really need to sort of hit the requirements of a body for the vast, 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 vast majority of people. The problem is people go above and beyond that and start taking extra. The other problem is the way the industry is regulated. There's just almost no regulation at all. And there have been investigations by different cities or states that have actually taken stuff off the shelf, taken it to the lab and says what's in this. And sometimes, you know, you think you're taking one thing and it turns out to be, and I kid you not, ground up house plants and asparagus. It's just, it's just none. Like you just have no way of knowing whether what you're taking in the bottle is what. And there was a, there was a real sting in New York and they found like a huge number had no molecule of what, what people said they were. Um, and when they sort of went back to the company, some of them reacted with chagrin because their major business wasn't supplements. They said, we're taking all this off the shelf. And then, of course, there's some companies where their whole business is supplements, and they, they tried to fight it. So you just don't know. And so there have been, again, study after study, a sting after sting, showing that sometimes they're full of products that are unhealthy, borderline illegal, you could be allergic to and just not know are in there. There was a recent study just published a, a week or two ago talking about the fact that a huge number of seniors take supplements and those supplements actually account for a significant uptick in drug-drug interactions if they are getting what they think they're getting with actual drugs they're taking. Because of course some of these things have you know, side effects or profiles that will interact with real drugs. So it's an unregulated, unreported, multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry that Americans love that, that shows almost no benefits at all. Yeah, because we're trying to get an edge. You right. know, we want to not get Alzheimer's and we want to keep, uh, keep our cognitive Just, uh, yeah. cognition functioning perfectly or our ability to, you know, do whatever. I you just know. wrote about that a couple of weeks ago because it, it was it sort of was jumping off the, the Sharapova news that she was taking. Yeah, was it Moldonium? Uh, yeah, um, but that is a first of all, it's like the, the, the evidence saying that Moldonium improves human performance is so weak. I mean, it's amazing. There's like there was like a report in a Slovakian or some or some some. Eastern European conference. I can't even find the published study. There's a one-page study in a Russian journal, which is now out of print. I mean, this is the evidence that people are taking aye, this aye, stuff aye. on. So I mean, career gets derailed so, over that. But they're doing this, mm -hmm. and they take it. God knows even if it's providing a benefit. But you're right. This and I. Then I started talking about nootropics, and then I got on the supplements. It's all. It's all this idea that that if something is good 
for someone who is sick that we could take it and get even a benefit above, above normal or above healthy. There's almost no evidence for that at all. Medications and things like that work at the edge where, where the sicker you are, the more of a benefit you get. And there's diminishing returns as you get closer and closer to healthy. That works for almost every drug. The problem is that your chance of getting a side effect is exactly the same whether you are very sick or very healthy. And so as you get closer and closer to healthier, you're getting less and less of a benefit, but the exact same potential harm. And then there's the rule your mother told you about drinking lots of water. If I beat one myth down before I die, I'd like it to be this one. There's like a few. This is just one of those. It just doesn't go away. And every time I feel like I've answered it, um, it comes back. I, a couple, actually maybe it was months ago, but I can't even keep track at this point. I wrote a piece for the New York Times where I specifically wanted to focus on um, the fact that research keeps coming out that says kids are dehydrated, when that's just not true. Um, and I wanted to attack this research. And my editors came back and were like, well, does this mean you don't have to drink eight glasses of water a day? And I, rem I literally was screaming in my office here because I, I didn't write that piece because I thought, well, isn't that done? I feel like I've written that piece 800 times. And they're like, no, 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 that's the piece we want. That's a winner. And I, I wrote that piece again and then added in the part of the dehydration. And it's every single time. It's like clickbait. It's just people flock to it. And, there's, and then people want to interview me and talk to me. And, they wanna, and it's, I'm like, I can't believe this is still... A debate, but there's no scientific proof at all that you need eight glasses of water a day. It comes out of a nutrition recommendation likely from the 1940s where a group of scientists with no real evidence behind them said, we think the average person needs something like 64 ounces of hydration a day. And then they kept going, but everybody ignores it, and that's where eight glasses of water comes from. Because they continued, but most people are going to get that in a normal diet. There is water in juice. There's water in tea, there's even water in beer, there's water in fruits, there's water in vegetables, there's water in so much of what we eat, and people do drink water. The most, most, most people in the world, are, or I shouldn't say the world, in the United States certainly, are getting plenty of hydration in a normal diet. The idea that we have to force ourselves to drink extra water or that pure water somehow makes a difference is completely made up, and yet everyone still continues to buy this to think that we're chronically dehydrated, that if they're thirsty, they're somehow suffering from dehydration, and none of that is true. Well, and I think the other one is the, the Gatorade, which, you know, those Peyton Manning commercials were ironically funny, you know, mm -hmm. in that, you know, it's like you don't sweat, but you know, every time a kid goes anywhere, you know, breaks a sweat doing any sport, um, including kind of sitting on the bench yeah. during Little League. I mean, there's a, there's this huge Gatorade. And it's, that's not like, that, that's just calories. I mean, you're just getting empty, free calories at that point. That stuff is full of, of carbohydrates. Although at least I would say if you're hot and you're sweating and you're active, fine, you might need something to drink. But the idea that, that the vast majority of us need Gatorade is somewhat made up. I mean, it was invented for high-performance athletes where maybe, maybe, you know, if you're truly competing at a super high level for hours at a time and you're not hydrating, it's potentially possible that you can improve your athletic performance by giving you some of these electrolytes on top of sugar, on top of water while you're performing. But almost none of us do that. I mean, the idea that in a kiddie soccer game where maybe a child's broken a sweat, maybe they've like, you know, gotten out of breath once, that they need to be hydrated with Gatorade immediately upon the conclusion of the game, there's, that's just, that's, there's nothing to do that at all. Yeah. How do you feel about milk? Ugh. <laughs> You're hitting all my spirits. <laughs> so milk is just one of those where an industry has just absolutely, uh, amazingly enough, 
constructor. I have this ongoing thing that we started on, on our YouTube channel where we invented the milk emperor because it's like uh, someday, the, you know, someone's going to prove it has no clothes and everyone's just going to realize that there's no question when a baby is born, you know, milk is best. All mammals, when they're babies, drink milk. All of them, across the board. The difference is that every other mammal in the world, when they are out of the infant period, no longer has milk again for the rest of their lives. And that we are mammals. And yet somehow, we, when we are done breastfeeding or if, if we're bottle feeding, we start like stealing the milk from other mammals to, to keep drinking it. There's no science or evolutionary idea to that at all. It's basically part of a huge push that's partially political with, with the fact that we sort of historically started the Dairy Council and started pushing that. And partially this idea that we have grown accustomed to the idea that we're all calcium deficient and that we're going to have brittle bones and, you know, everyone needs calcium. Study after study after study shows that, you know, supplementation with milk makes no difference in terms of, like, bone strength for adults. Calcium supplementation, for the most part, almost makes no difference. Vitamin D supplementation almost makes no difference, unless you are chronically deprived. Like, yeah, obviously, if you have, um, you know, a calcium deficiency disease, yes, you need to be treated. But, you know, we don't need milk, and it has calories. And ironically enough, low-fat milk has more carbs than full-fat milk. Um, and the idea that we, we are so worried about soda and to a lesser extent juice, but milk gets a pass, we're just, again, we're allowing kids to have more calories in their day than they potentially need. And as we're so concerned about reducing caloric intake from beverages, milk is right up there. And there's just not really almost any good evidence that outside of, you know, childhood, and I mean like even really young, that milk makes much of a difference at all. And yet, you know, people, those milk mustache commercials are a hit and people are sure that if they don't get enough, they're going to suffer and their bones and their teeth will suffer. And there's just there's no evidence for that at all. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for talking with me. I hope to talk to you again and bring you up some more topics that annoy you. <laughs> yeah, sure. Oh, it's not annoying me. It's just like, it's just the hit after hit after hit. But the, you know, it's funny because uh, my friends used to joke all the time that almost all of my research is spite-based. And it's, <laughs> That it's, I find just things that drive me crazy, and that's what I focus on. And so I th this is just like any other day in my office. It's just I wind up screaming at the computer or upset about something that someone said and then feel like I need to go correct it. Dr. Aaron Carroll blogs for the New York Times. He shows up on YouTube an awful lot. He's a professor of pediatrics and Associate Dean for Research Mentoring at the Indiana University School of Medicine. And lucky for us, he's going to be a regular guest here on the Sound Medicine Podcast. And that's it for this episode. Sound Medicine is written and produced by Nora Hyatt. Chris Lieber engineers and edits our show, and he wrote our theme music. We're distributed by ACAST with support from the Indiana University School of Medicine. You can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher and wherever else you find your podcasts. Let us know what you think. I'm Barbara Lewis. You take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.